Well, the problem is, no matter how long we look at our genealogies, all we find are humans. And when we find humans there, all we find are sinners. And in their natural state, they and we are all desperate, needy people bound for hell under the wrath of God and without hope apart from Jesus. We won't be able to find any true comfort in our own genealogies. There is ultimate hope in one genealogy. That's the genealogy that we have read this morning, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Welcome to Grace Maribel Weekly, which is a sermon podcast ministry of the Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is titled The Lineage of the King. Pastor Chris Reiser will be teaching us from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which is the record of the genealogy of Jesus. But are genealogies really important? Is Jesus really the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the eternal King? Let's listen as Pastor Chris explains the historical record that proves Jesus' right to the title of King. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Please stand with me. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Please be seated. Now, whether you know it or not, genealogies are hot. I know you're thinking, sure, that's because you keep reading them every Sunday. Well, the same hobby that was once the preferred pastime of shut-ins, spinsters, and confirmed bachelors has become widely popular. It's no longer a niche, says Tim Sullivan, the CEO of Ancestry. He tells ABC News the site now has more than 2 million paid subscribers. Ancestry will report a billion dollars in revenue for the year 2012, last year's news from abcnews.com. So genealogies are all the rage. Why? Well, we search our ancestry to try to find our identity. 
and perhaps to find a few impressive predecessors who will heighten our own sense of importance. Well, the problem is, no matter how long we look at our genealogies, all we find are humans. And when we find humans there, all we find are sinners. And in their natural state, they and we are all desperate, needy people bound for hell under the wrath of God and without hope apart from Jesus. We won't be able to find any true comfort in our own genealogies, but there is ultimate hope in one genealogy, and that's the genealogy that we have read this morning, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. So let's look deeply into that genealogy this morning. And as we do so, we will see that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the eternal King and the Savior of the world who has rescued us from our pitiful, sinful state through the exercise of his boundless grace. Again, Jesus is the promised Messiah, the eternal King and the Savior of the world who has rescued us from our pitiful, sinful state through the exercise of his boundless grace. Now, we've been overviewing or really introing the book of Matthew for the past several weeks. So I just want to remind you again that the author of the book of Matthew is Matthew. That's what the title says. That's what we believe. The date, sometime between probably 58 AD and 69 AD, enough time for oral tradition to be established about what Jesus said and did, but before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, no mention of that in the book of Matthew. The genre, that is the type of literature that the book of Matthew is, we said is ancient historical biography. That is, it's historical, it's a biography about Jesus, and yet it follows the rules that ancient biographies would have followed. Truthful, historical, and yet not exactly the same as we would expect if we picked up a biography today. The audience, Christian and unbelieving Jews. That's the specific audience. Now again, it's written to anyone who will read it, but that was the primary audience to whom Matthew wrote. We talked about the structure just a bit, and again, this is helpful in, in, in thinking about the book as a whole. Uh, Chapter 1, verse, verse 1 through 4.16 is, we might call it the introduction to the king. Chapter 4, verse 17 through 16.20 is the life of the king. And then really the bulk of the book, or, or a large portion of it in comparison to the others, 16.20 through 28.20 is the passion of the king, the record of his Jesus' death, and then ultimately his burial and his resurrection. We said there were five major discourses, five major sermons that are delivered in the book, many other things that Jesus said, but those five major ones. And then we talked about three general themes. First, the historical theme. That is, why was Matthew writing to the original audience in the first century? Well, he was writing to inform believing and unbelieving Jews of Jesus's credentials as King and Messiah, that they might be encouraged to worship and obey Christ, those who were believers, or repent and believe those who were unbelievers. Always there has been an attack on the person and work of Christ as our Messiah and King. It was true in the first century, it's true now. So he wrote to encourage those who were embracing the Messiah and then to challenge those who had rejected the Messiah. Now, the theological theme bringing that truth to the original audience now to us today, also an audience intended by the Spirit of God, the theological theme would be to present Jesus as the King of Israel and the Sovereign Lord and Savior who is worthy of all worship and obedience. He is our King. He is our Lord, even though we are not ethnic Jews. And he rules over us as our Savior. Then the short theme, kind of putting all of that together, is Jesus is the Savior King. He's the one who saves, and yet as we will see even this morning, it is only the King who can save. So not separate offices, right? They are both exercised by Christ and both exercised always at the same time. 
Now let's then take a as brief, well, as close a look as we can in a brief period of time to the lineage of the king. We will seek to take the genealogy as a whole this morning and we'll just see how quickly we can move through. First, the lineage overview. So this is the lineage of Christ. The first verse really gives us an introduction and an overview to the specifics that will be mentioned in the verses that follow. So it is the record, says our text, of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Really, the word there for genealogy is Genesis or origin. It's a book of beginnings. Well, the book of the beginnings of Christ. You have the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. That's the book of how everything began. Well, here is the book of how Christ began, at least in relationship, as we will see, to the Jewish nation. That's important. That's one of the reasons we know that the audience is Jews, because he starts, as we will see, or really he, he grounds everything in Abraham. That isn't where the genealogy ends or really where it begins uh, in, in history, but that's where Matthew takes it. So we could maybe paraphrase this, a book of the origin or a book of the history of the story of Jesus Christ, a record of his ancestry. Now, right away, as we look at this genealogy, what comes to our minds is another genealogy, and that's in Luke chapter 3. And we've talked a bit about this, but go ahead and turn there. And I've been reading through the genealogy in Matthew enough times that you should be fairly familiar with the names. And as we move to Luke chapter 3, what you'll notice and what you're probably already aware of is that the genealogy there, although it says it's a genealogy of Joseph, uh, at least it, it begins with him, his name, it has different names in it. We're not going to read all the way through it, but in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says, when he, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mata, and it moves its way up as supposed to the genealogy in Matthew, which moved its way down from Abraham, down to Joseph. This moves from Joseph up really all the way past Abraham to Adam. And so the question becomes, well, why are there two different genealogies? And they're not only move in different orders, but they have different names. Now there's two answers, or there, I think there's two possible answers to that. One you might not be familiar with, and one you probably are. I'll start with the one that is possible. I don't think it's the answer, but many, in fact, most of the commentaries take this tack when it comes to what the genealogy in Luke is as compared to the genealogy in Matthew. Right? They would say, some would say, right, that there, these are, there can be, this might be, two types of genealogies of Joseph himself. Matthew's a tracing of the throne succession through Solomon, of those who were kings or had legal rights to be king. And then Luke, still the parentage of Joseph, but that was through the son of David, Nathan, Joseph's actual physical line. So we would say two separate genealogies, one tracing Joseph's line through kings or through the kingship, David's line through the kingship, of which Joseph was a part, and then is that Joseph's actual physical lineage through Nathan. Now that's one possibility. It is a possibility. It could be that. I think a better possibility, and one that you're maybe more familiar with, is that these are two separate genealogies, one tracing Joseph's actual physical line. He was in the line of the kings, according to Matthew. That's how we would see it. And so it traces his kingly line. And then the one in Matthew, it says, as was supposed, we read in, in Luke, excuse me, the one in Luke, Luke chapter 3, as was supposed the son of Joseph, recognizing that Jesus was not the physical son of Joseph, that that genealogy actually traces the line of Mary. Who would then be of the physical descendants, the DNA, as it were, physical DNA of David, uh, and so it would trace her line in the physical sense. I think that's probably the best understanding of the genealogies. One, Joseph's the legal line, and remember, Joseph was not then actually a, a physical, or Jesus was not a physical descendant of Joseph, but a legal one, and then Mary's physical tie to to David, and therefore Jesus's physical tie to David as well. All right, now. The titles of Jesus, then, are the second part of this genealogy. Once we've kind of tried to understand how it relates to the genealogy in Luke, 
We have some titles of Jesus that give an overview of the genealogy as, as a whole. So the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. This is the first title that's given to us. And of course, it is the one upon which Matthew focuses. Jesus is the Savior. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one, really. That's directly related to the Old Testament, the idea of the anointed one, the one set apart by God, the one prepared to accomplish the work which God has. And there was great expectation of the Messiah during, during the time Matthew writes, and really in the Jews as a whole. And that was because the Messiah, the anointed one, is promised in the Old Testament. Now, the, the actual word Messiah, is it, it, it appears a little bit later in the New Testament or the Old Testament writings, but all the way back to Genesis 3.15, we have the first promise of the one who will come and be the deliverer, right? And that is the anointed one, the one, and that name for him is, is taken up then and in, in largely in the prophetic literature, and we see it in Psalm 2.2, David speaking prophetically. He says, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that would be God the Father, and his anointed, that would be Jesus, saying. So that terminology begins to be picked up by the prophets, the anointed one, big A anointed one. There are other anointed ones. The Levites were anointed for a certain task and other things. But the big A anointed one is Jesus. He is the one who was promised. He's the one set apart to be the deliverer of the world. And, and Matthew also uses this title. Now, if you're reading the ESV, or I believe also the NIV, uh, it says Jesus Christ. Well, that is what the word is in the Greek. It's Jesus, and then Christos is the Greek word. But I think the translation that we have here in Matthew, the Messiah, is Matthew's intent. Because remember, Jesus or Christ is not Jesus' last name, as it were. It is his title. Jesus is his human name, which we've already looked at several weeks ago. It's Joshua from the Old Testament. The, the one who saves, the Savior. But he is the Savior who is the anointed one. That's his title. That's his office, the one who has come all right, on a set apart by God to accomplish the purpose of the redemption of mankind. And, and really, that would have been striking to those who picked up this gospel in the first century. The first, you know, the first sentence, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one who was promised. He has come. You have the right Savior. He is the one the Old Testament predicted. You don't have to look for another Messiah. And remember, the Jews as a whole are what? They're still waiting for another Messiah. But they will not receive one. They will not have another Messiah. There's only one. But I want to encourage you guys with that as well. He is truly the Messiah. And Matthew uses the word Christ in, in multiple times in his gospel, and really two particular times to emphasize this title, who the Messiah is. Matthew 16, 16. Jesus is asking his disciples, he said, you know, who do you say that I am? The people say certain things, and, and who do you say? And the disciples, well, they you know, say you're a prophet, you're Elijah, whatever. And then Jesus said to them, who do you, the disciples, say that I am? In Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, you Christos. You are the Christ. And then really expanding on what that means, you are the son of the living God. You are God and man. You are fully God, you are fully man, you are the one who has come to save, the one the Old Testament promised. And Peter embraced that. And we have that testimony, and remember that Jesus said, it's not man that revealed that to you, it's God. That's how, that's how it's revealed that Jesus is the Messiah. And then in Matthew 26, 63, when Jesus is on trial before the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, right? all the other accusations they make against him, he keeps silent. He said he was going to destroy the town, bully, blaspheme, or other, other types of things that he did. But then the high priest in Matthew 26, 63 said to him, I adjure you by the living God, 
that you tell me whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, he's trying to get Jesus to say this, not because he thinks that Jesus is actually the Christ, the Son of God, but because if Jesus will admit to this, then that's blasphemy, because of course he can't be. That's how the high priest views it. So he'll be claiming to be God if he says or agrees to this, and then we will have the means by which we can condemn him to death. And it's fascinating what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Now, that's not some kind of dodge where he's saying, well, I'm not really going to say that. I'm not going to incriminate myself. I'm taking the fifth. You know what he's doing? He's pointing it back to the high priest and said, you've just confessed who I am. You have said it. Now, you don't believe it. That's what's implied there. You don't believe who I really am, but you've said it. And, And the reason we know that Jesus is really putting that back on the high priest, you've confessed who I am, But you don't believe me because he says, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. A reference to Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man comes to establish his kingdom. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah, but you don't believe I'm the Messiah. So what you're going to see is not, you don't believe my coming to save you from your sin. So what you're going to see is me coming in judgment upon your sin. That's what you're going to receive. See, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who saves. But if you do not embrace him as Messiah, you will have him for your judge. And he will come upon the the clouds at the right hand of power, and he will judge you. That's what he tells the high priest. That's what he tells his ethnic people, Israel. But it is the same message to us today. Do you embrace this first title? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the only Savior. There is none other. Matthew trumpets that at the beginning, proves it all throughout and causes us to, and calls us to fall on our knees and worship him, do you? Have you begun to take this for granted? See, the readers in the first century wouldn't have. They were wrestling and struggling with the battle of believing in Jesus and of holding firmly to him. Now, again, we may be as well, but perhaps you have grown apathetic. Perhaps this doesn't mean much to you. Jesus is the Messiah. Let's move on. No, let's not move on. He's the only Savior He is the one who has come, the predicted Messiah of the Old Testament, God's Savior, fully God and fully man, who gave his life for you, who was raised again from the dead, and who is the only Savior. So that's, I think, the the most general title used here, Jesus the Messiah. But, and really, undergirding and the foundation of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that title, are these two other titles that are given in this first verse. So Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David. This points to Jesus' necessary lineage and royal role. He's the promised Messiah who is the promised king to rule over his people. He's the Jewish king that comes in the line of David. And this is absolutely necessary for him to be their Messiah. There is no Messiah. There is no savior apart from Jesus being the king. And let's never forget that. That's true for the Jews. That's true for us. He's not a savior. He wasn't king. He's the risen savior king. And it's true in an ethnic sense for his ethnic people, a spiritual sense for his ethnic people, and a spiritual sense for those who are not his ethnic people, and also a real sense that Jesus will rule and reign physically over us as well. So in all those ways that will flesh out through our study of the book of Matthew, Jesus is the son of David, the promised Davidic king. Matthew 22 Jesus kind of, he, he, again, through form of a question, he brings this to bear, what it means that he's the Davidic king in Matthew 22. He says, what do you think about the Christ? This is Jesus answering again and really putting the religious leaders on the defensive. He says, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? 
because they tied those two things together as the Old Testament did. Whose son is he? If he's the Messiah, then he has a lineage. What is that lineage? And of course, they answered with the biblical answer. They said to him, the son of David. They knew their Bible. They knew their Old Testament. Again, they didn't believe Jesus was the son of David. And so he said to them, then how does David in the spirit, that is David the king, David the prophet, writing in the book of Psalms, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how does David in the spirit call him Lord or Adonai, but a, a title for God? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? He's saying, what you're missing is that the Davidic king, who I am, I am the son of David, is God. Those are not separate things. They come together because that's the only way he can truly be the Davidic king, as we will see. He is the eternal king. He has the eternal throne, the eternal house. And so he must be God. And that's what Jesus is pointing to them. You're looking for a physical son of David who isn't necessarily God. In fact, that wasn't their expectation. He said, you're missing the fact I am God. And I am also, or I am along with that, the promised Davidic king. Now, where this promise came to be, and remember that everything in the Bible is driven by covenant. It's driven by promise. A true study of the covenants, the biblical covenants, will reveal to us the the way that God has made promises, the way that he answers those promises, and it drives our entire understanding of both Old Testament and New Testament. God has made promises, he then works out the fulfillment of those promises, and he brings everything to completion in answering those promises. He never fails. And so really, in, in essence, Matthew is working kind of backwards here because the Davidic covenant really comes underneath the next covenant that we will see. But he introduces this one first. He says he's the son of David, which has to do with the promise made to David that he would have, that there would be a descendant who would be the everlasting king. Turn to 2 Samuel 7. Now, we looked at this briefly when we were looking at the genealogy in Ruth, you remember, and and the line of David and therefore the line of Christ there. But we're going to do a little bit of review because the more times you hear this, the more you'll remember it. All right, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. And again, it's vital that we understand the covenants because they drive the rest of what God is doing throughout Old Testament and New Testament. See, you know, you know, just grab the Old Testament, read a couple verses and go, wow, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. What do I do with that? Let's see if I can find a, I should quickly move to the Psalms so I can find a verse that kind of warms my soul and move on. Guys, it's great to warm your soul with the book of Psalms. It's also great to understand what even in the book of Psalms and every other book in, in the Old Testament is related to the promises of God and, and many of those books and promises related to this covenant. 2 Samuel seven twelve. Remember, David was desiring to build a house for the Lord, to build a temple in which he could dwell. First, first Nathan says yes, then God appears to him and says, no, tell him he can't do that. He can't build my house. Here's the surprising thing. I'm going to build his that's, that's kind of the, the, the groundwork in which this promise is being made. Second Samuel 7, verse 12, says, When your days are complete, this is Nathan speaking, God speaking through Nathan to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. Now, certainly Solomon, who was the next descendant after David, the kingly descendant, is part of this. And remember, in, in, in biblical prophecy, there's almost always a near fulfillment or fulfillment in the time when the prophecy is being made. But then the, pro- the prophecy 
many of them relate to a more complete or really really the, the full fulfillment of that prophecy. Solomon is part of that in the line of David. You'll have a son, you'll have a king who will establish and build my earthly house. But in a bigger picture, because as he moves towards eternal, we see, and as is quoted in the New Testament, this quoted to be the prophecy of Jesus coming to establish an eternal throne and an eternal house. Solomon can't do that. The physical line of David could not establish an eternal house and an eternal throne. You have to have an eternal king. And so this is ultimately a prophecy fulfilled in Christ, that he is the one who will sit upon the throne of David. He will have an eternal house, that is the line of David, an eternal throne, that is the rule of David, an eternal kingdom, that is the sphere in which David would rule. So this will be eternal. This is the promise. And notice here that this is what we call an unconditional covenant. It doesn't say, David, if you do this, I'll do this. In fact, it says, really, David, I'm not going to let you do what you want to do. I'm going to do for you what I desire to do, unconditional. So there's nothing that can, can get in the way of this unless God were to somehow be unfaithful. And that's impossible. Since God cannot be unfaithful, this covenant must be fulfilled in its entirety in everything that it, it alludes to. And it will be fulfilled. And we see that happening as we move to the New Testament. And Matthew says, Jesus is that son. He's the eternal son promised in the Davidic covenant. He has come. Now, as we will see, it is the beginning of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And really, all that goes on in the Old Testament, it was the beginning of that. And Jesus lays the groundwork then in his death, burial, and resurrection as a Davidic king. But we'll see that there's more to come. In that Davidic covenant, it works all the way through to the millennial kingdom, all the way through essentially to the end of time as, as Jesus will rule forever. Right? But what a powerful thought to consider that as Jesus comes as a Messiah, he is not Messiah unless he is king. And if he is not the Davidic king, the ethnic king of Israel, as well as the one who rules in Davidic capacity over both Israel and all believers, right, then he is no Messiah at all. You cannot have one without the other. And that's what's being established at the beginning in this genealogy. Now, when I, I did this before, I went through some of the things prophesied because the idea of Jesus as a Davidic king is emphasized throughout the prophets. Isaiah 9 says, On the throne of David and over his kingdom, that is, the child will be born to us, a son will be given, what is constantly quoted in the New Testament, the coming of Christ. Well, he will have the throne of David. He will rule over the kingdom of David as the ethnic Jews and their land. Jeremiah 23, 5, when I raise up for David a righteous branch, he will reign as king and act wisely to do justice and righteousness in the land. Hosea 3, 5, 3, 4. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days, which are yet to come. And so there's aspects to this Davidic covenant that are being fulfilled in Christ as he comes as a Davidic king and have yet to be fulfilled as history works itself out. But understand this, God always is faithful to his covenants. And the covenants drive the work of God because that's what he promised. And the unconditional covenants based upon his faithfulness alone are the ones that, of course, must be fulfilled and worked out. So we have the Davidic covenant. Now, again, when we, we saw this before, this fulfillment of the Davidic covenant begins really, or is its first stage is completed when Christ came to die for us. Luke one thirty two, For he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Second Timothy 2a says, remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. So he comes and establishes his identity as a Davidic king. 
But this will not be finished until we see in Revelation 20, after the return of Christ to the earth, it says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had received the mark on their forehead, who had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. He reigns in Jerusalem. He reigns on the throne of his father David. He reigns with the saints. He reigns with those from Israel restored. It, it, it restored Israel as it happens during the time of the tribulation. So much here, but understand, if you try to read the Bible apart from the covenants, apart from understanding what God has done, you start to change things. You start to kind of you know, develop them according to your own theology as opposed to what God has promised in his word. And right out of the gate in the book of Matthew, he's the Messiah, and therefore he must be the son of David, the ethnic king of Israel, the one who will have the eternal house, the eternal throne, the eternal kingdom. But then there's another title given to him. And really, again, working our way backwards in our covenants, in our theology of the covenants, he starts with the Davidic, right? But really, and actually he starts with the new covenant, the Messiah, the one who was the savior of the world, right? And he works back to the Davidic covenant and then to the Abrahamic covenant. He says, back in your text, that Jesus is, in his genealogy, the son of Abraham. And again, if, if the Old Testament means nothing, and if we just kind of yank, you know, yank New Testament history all by itself and don't pay attention to these things, then what does this actually mean? It doesn't mean anything if we, if we don't understand what is going on in the Old Testament. Son of Abraham, why is that important? Isn't he my Savior now? Don't we just believe in Jesus? We do. We believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. He has to be those things. There's no Messiah, no God. He hasn't accomplished anything at all. That's why these are established at the very beginning. So this establishes Jesus as, as the descendant of the one who was the beginning of the Jewish race. It establishes Jesus' Jewish identity to its fullest. Because remember, Abraham was called out of Ur, a pagan idolater. He was called by God. He believed in God, and he became, became the father of the Jewish race. And it's fascinating that then when you begin in chapter two or ch chapter 1, verse 2, the genealogy, the specific names, begin with Abraham, not with the other those who came before, and not with Adam, but with Abraham. Why? Because to a Jewish audience, the founding of the Jewish race out of which Jesus comes as the Messiah is the groundwork for his saving of Israel and his saving of the world. He is the descendant of Abraham. Now, you're familiar with, or I hope that you're familiar with then, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And that's a promise, you'll remember, of land and seed and blessing. Go ahead and turn there, since you may already be in the Old Testament. In Genesis 12, remember, this, this covenant really uh, in, in the Old Testament becomes the grounding covenant, right? the grounding unconditional covenant that relates to the redemption of men. There's the Noahic covenant, which comes in Genesis chapter 9, which speaks of essentially the, the government of the earth and how that will work and the fact that there will be seasons until God returns you know, and, and brings his new heavens and new earth. But as it relates to the, sa the salvation of mankind, God's redemptive purposes, this Abrahamic covenant is really the groundwork for all the other covenants and the, the saving work of God throughout history. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We have a land promised. I will, I will give you a land, a place to dwell. 
who have a seed promised. I will give you a child. Now, certainly that was Isaac in the near portion of that fulfillment, but we see clearly in the book of Galatians and in the New Testament that the big picture fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is what? Jesus as the seed, the one who will come, who then extends the blessing to the rest of the world who then flows, the the blessing that flows through Israel, then flows through Christ, the seed of Abraham, out to the rest of the world. So Matthew's names for Jesus present him as the fulfillment of the hopes and prophecies of Israel, but also as the one who will extend God's blessing to the Gentiles. His birth marks a new epoch in human history where the covenants begin or, or see the groundwork and the flowing out of their fulfillment. And if you had to kind of view this pictorially, you would see the Abrahamic covenant as, as, as the groundwork, the foundational covenant for God's redemptive work. Flowing out of that, you have the land promise. We would call that. It's reiterated in Deuteronomy, the Palestinian covenant. There's a land promised to Israel, ethnic Israel, promised to them forever, essentially. That promise will be reestablished or really fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. But the land, the seed, and the blessing, the seed then is the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the son of David. He is the one who comes in that line. He is the king who comes, yes, as the seed of Abraham, but also as the son of David. So really, the Davidic covenant fits underneath the Abrahamic covenant. So you have land, Palestinian covenant, seed, the Davidic covenant, which which Jesus fulfills and begins the, the final outworking of. And then you have the blessing, that is the blessing of salvation extended to the nations. That's the new covenant. So all the covenants that we have in the, in the Bible are related to the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of land and seed and blessing. Now, you might be thinking, well, you missed a covenant. You missed the Mosaic covenant. Well, I didn't miss it because it's done. The Davidic covenant remains. The Palestinian covenant remains. The new covenant certainly remains. The Mosaic covenant is done. Why? It was a conditional covenant and it couldn't be fulfilled. So it was set aside. Yes, Jesus fulfilled it, but he set it aside as a covenant through which he was relating to his people. It's done. He abrogated it. It's finished. But the Abrahamic covenant isn't. The Davidic covenant isn't. The new covenant isn't. And the Palestinian covenant isn't. All of these things are ongoing. And notice, I'm not pointing to this. These are the things that Matthew begins with. These covenants are vital. These are the titles of who Jesus is, the outflowing of God's faithfulness in his unconditional covenants. I hope that will help you as you study Old Testament. Are you reading the Old Testament? Are you reading the Bible this year? Just a little aside, you ought to be. How many times have you read through the Bible? Don't raise your hand. Don't see it. Don't yell out numbers. Yes, you should be reading it over and over and over. So you are getting the big picture of what God is doing. Because if you have, and if you are, you read Matthew 1, 1, and you're like, I know, I, I, I got that. I've, I've read the Abrahamic covenant. I've seen the Davidic covenant. I, I, I begin to see the outworkings of those things. But if you're looking at me this morning going, what are you talking about? It's not so much, you don't need to go to seminary. You don't need, you know, it'd be good to pick up a systematic theology. You should do that. You need to start reading the Bible so that you will see these things over and over and begin to understand how these pieces fit together because that's how I understand, I'm able to understand Matthew. That's how you are able to understand Matthew. All right, so that's the overview. Now let's get into the specifics of the genealogy. So those are the titles, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he begins with the individual names. And we'll just work through this, hitting the highlights really revealed to us by the text itself. Matthew pauses in certain places or he adds certain things at at individual places to highlight pictures of this genealogy that he desires. And remember, that's part of ancient historical biography. This genealogy does not flow perfectly from one descendant to the other. There are gaps in it, as we will see. 
That's purposeful. And anyone reading this, any Jew reading this, would have known what the gaps were and where they were. They wouldn't have been, oh, Matthew forgot something. Or he's trying to put one over on us. No, they would know exactly. But Matthew has a thematic purpose with this genealogy. He's going to tell us that at the end. He's just, he's going to lay that out. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. Pastor Chris has demonstrated that the historical records prove that Jesus is, in fact, the rightful heir to the kingship of Israel by a logical and rational look at Jesus' genealogy. For believers, our prayer is that the historical record strengthens your faith in King Jesus. If you are not a believer, we pray that you will see that the historical records do in fact support his claim as King, Messiah, and Savior. If you would like to find out more about Grace Community Church, please visit us at gracemarvel.org. There you can read our statement of faith and our distinctives, as well as review our audio and video archives, which include sermons, Sunday school lessons, and sermons from our many guest speakers at our solo conferences and our essentials conferences. If you're ever in East Tennessee, we would love to have you worship with us in person. Our address, phone number, and email information can all be found at gracemarvel.org. Join us soon as Pastor Chris continues in an exegetical look at the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the king and the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.